Our scripture this evening comes once again from uh, uh, the first epistle of John, First uh, John chapter 4. First <clears throat> John chapter 4, and I will read the first six verses of that chapter. First John 4, uh, 1 through 6. Hear now God's word. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to be, see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you cause your spirit to come amongst us. And we thank you that one of the ways in which you come amongst us, O Holy Spirit, is by the word that you have given. And so we pray for your guidance and for your opening of our hearts and our minds so that that which you have given to us might be profitable for us as we seek to live for your glory. And we make this plea to you in Jesus' name. And we say together, Amen. We react to the idea of testing in lots of different ways. And for some, the suggestion that you engage in a test has kind of a a chilling thought for you. Uh, Tests uh, are things that you've never liked and uh, they bring up unpleasant memories of things in your past, perhaps. Uh, Personally, I'm kind of ambivalent about tests. When I was a student, There was a quirk in my personality, one of many, but there was a quirk in my personality that when we had a test, my competitive spirit came out, and I almost enjoyed it because it was student against that teacher. Uh, Then I became a teacher, and uh, I loathed tests. I did not like to prepare them, and I liked less grading them. Now I'm an old man, and uh, tests are altogether different. A test for me now mostly require me to go to the hospital and give some blood and wait for a while for the results to come back. And by and large, uh, these tests don't bother me. I guess the one exception that we all understand is when the doctor says you're due for a colonoscopy. Uh, but we, differ, we have different ways of thinking about tests. And in the text that I read to you tonight, the, the Apostle John sets before us uh, almost a requirement, I think we could say, uh, that we engage in testing. And we are the ones who test, and to a certain extent, we are also the ones who are tested. And so he wants us to test the spirits, as he says, uh, to see whether they are from God or whether they are from the devil. So let's look at John's call call for a time of testing uh, by first uh, kind of figure out the reason why John suggests 
that we ought to engage in this testing, and then to look at, at what the test looks like, what, what makes up the test and uh, what we're really looking for in the test, and then closely associated with that to see where the test, those who take the test are most well-suited, whether they're best well-suited in the world or not in the world. And so let's begin by looking at the a problem that, that uh, uh, requires the testing it's interesting, first of all, to note the way in which John addresses his readers. And he, he's done this in, in, in similar ways earlier. But in this one, he calls them a beloved in the first verse, and he calls them little children. And both of these uh, uh, ways of addressing the people are, are, are something that shows John's affection for the congregation. He's trying to show them that they're special to him and that these are terms of endearment, if you will, and as such, they would have a special effect on, on the hearers. Uh, and in using these terms, uh, John demonstrates that, that he's not engaged in some kind of simple theological discourse. Uh, what he has to say about false prophets uh, not only is important but uh, to John, but it's also something that he sees as is necessary for, uh, for his audience. John doesn't want them to follow the Antichrist. And as he addresses them as, as little children and as his beloved, he, he communicates to them that, that he's not simply trying to protect them against some uh, evil that's out there that's kind of abstract, but he is uh, fatherly, if you will. He also identifies them in other places as the elder. He's caring about them, and so that's the reason why he does this. And one thing that John doesn't want them to do is to abandon the gospel that he has presented to them because that would run counter to everything that the apostle himself holds precious. Now, those who oppose John and his little children, John calls them spirits, as he says, tests the spirits. And I don't think that these are some sort of ethereal, non-bodily influences that whisper into the ears of his people. Uh, it's altogether likely that John is uh, following up on a statement that he made at the end of the last uh, chapter in chapter 3, verse 24, where he talked about the Holy Spirit, and now he comes along to make a contrast. And I take the spirits that he's talking about as really people uh, who are probably some kind of teachers, perhaps people who are calling themselves uh, prophets. And uh, in the one case, uh, the people who are like John are, are inhabited, if you will, by the Holy Spirit, and he's the one who's guiding them. And on the other hand, there are those who have the spirit of the evil one. The devil is the one who's guiding them. Uh, the presence of these two uh, competing spiritual forces that John is talking about uh, have some content, and that's a part of what John wants to test. And so they can't be something you can't hear and see and make some judgment about. It does seem to me that John wants his beloved children to recognize that some teaching comes from the Holy Spirit and teaching that opposes that comes from the devil. And so it follows that the only, only real people uh, who can talk and that other people can hear and they can make judgments about what the people say and hear. I think it's also important for us to be cognizant of the, of the radical difference that John sets out between that which is true and that which is false, both in terms of spirits, but also in terms of those who are influenced and do the teaching. And in our society, we don't like to think about right and wrong. 
Uh, I've mentioned in, from this desk in the past, uh, surprise at students who, who move from talking about things right and wrong when I first started teaching, and nobody talked about things. These were seminary students, and they didn't talk any longer about right and wrong. We talked about opinions, and uh, we had opinions. And uh, uh, John, I don't think, would have any of that. I just think he would uh, throw that out, of, out, out right away. Uh, some of these uh, prophetic teachers are influenced by the Holy Spirit, as he said in the last chapter, who abides in them. And those who, who oppose them are under the direction and control of the father of lies, the devil. Some of them are right. They learn from the Holy Spirit. And some of them are absolutely wrong. And they follow the way of the devil. And so they are wrong. Now, some of you, as you hear me make such a bold declaration, you, you fear for me, you know. Uh, you don't want me to be a bigot. Uh, and uh, in our society, when you think of me as being a bigot, you think of me as committing some kind of uh, unforgivable cardinal sin. Uh, the worst thing that you can be in the world is to be a bigot. Uh, I don't think I'm engaged in bigotry, but if I am a bigot, I still have to be a bigot because I have to set before you tonight some things that are right and some things are wrong. Whether that's bigotry, whether that's naivete, I don't know and I don't really care because the scriptures very clearly put before us. Some of these people are right. They're the ones that are influenced by the Holy Spirit. And some of these people are wrong. And they are following the spirit of the Antichrist. And regardless of the way in which our world and our society may think about bigotry, may think about making things right and wrong, we as God's people have to recognize that the scriptures teach us things are right and scriptures teach us that things are wrong. And we dare not, we dare not lose sight of that. So we, we have to put this out before us as we look at this. Uh, the, the apostle also uh, uh, the, tells us something about what was the problem, the danger, if you will, uh, that his cherished congregation faced. And, and it's not simply a theoretical thing. I've already mentioned this, and I'll probably mention it again as we go along. It's not just theoretical kind of theology that he's talking about here. Um, and as he says in the next to the last verse of this letter, that those who follow the true Christ, those are the ones who have eternal life. And those who refuse to follow the commandment to believe in the name of, the son of his son, Jesus Christ, they don't have eternal life. And the danger that John and his people faced in the late first century, what there were those who denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. And that denial, as far as John is concerned, means that these people will go to hell. And those who embrace this Jesus who came in the flesh and trust him and believe in him, they are the ones who are going to have eternal life. And the same thing is true for uh, 20 centuries later for people who live in the United States, who live in America now. That we either have to believe in this Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, we have to trust in him, as John says in the previous chapter, we looked at last Sunday evening, that one commandment that he has, that we believe in the name of the Son, uh, Jesus Christ, and we love one another. And if we don't do that, uh, then we're going to hell. And John wants to make this so very clear. And the reason why John wants to make this so very clear is because of his affection for this audience. And I judge, if I look at my own motives, right, the reason why I'm taking the risk, for example, of being a bigot in this pulpit tonight is because I care about whether you really do believe in the name of the Son 
who came in the flesh, namely Jesus Christ. And so, so it's not just some little thing, it is something big. I think that's why uh, uh, John, when he ends this, the very last verse of this book, of this letter says, my little children, keep yourself from idols. And we know what happens to idol worshipers. Idol worshipers are damned. And so John is concerned, and I think we have to share that very same concern that John does. Uh, in order for, to keep his congregation from falling prey to the agents of the Antichrist, John tells them they have to test the spirits. And a reasonable question to ask is, how do we go about testing spirits? You know, it's, it's not as uh, simple as saying, sit here, here's a paper with 10 questions on it, fill it out, and I'll be back in an hour later to see what your answers are. It's not quite uh, that simple. It doesn't work that way when we come to dealing with, with, uh, um, with, with these people who are in the spirit of the Antichrist. The, the Greek word that he uses here uh, originally applied to determining whether a, a coin was genuine you lived in the ancient world, you wanted to make sure that it was gold all the way through. It wasn't partially gold. So it was very important for this. And John tells his people to determine whether or not what these true prophets or false prophets have to say, whether it's genuine or not. He wants them to see whether it's in accord with the teachings that they have heard from the beginning. Uh, what John has in mind particularly is the teaching offered by two different parties. And he wants them to determine which is true which follows the doctrine that they had embraced in the past, a part of what they had had as a part of their teaching. And in order to heed John's admonition, uh, there, there are certain things that were required of these people and certain things that are required of us. We have to listen to things. We have to pay attention to things. And again, we live in a world where it's easy not to pay attention to things. And so many things fly around us that we feel like we can jump in and out of, of understanding things. We can jump in and out of things. Anybody who sat in this room and listened to uh, sermons for a number of years knows how easy it is to be paying attention and something comes up and you wonder where you are. You know, you have to get back into the sermon, if you will. And, and, and in order to follow John's prescription that we test the spirits, we have to discipline ourselves so that we can pay attention to what they have to say. We have to listen to them. We not only have to, uh, to listen to them, we have to think about what they heard. We have to make judgments about it. Uh, there used to be a joke when I was teaching uh, seminary students, and seminary students sometimes don't think about things. Uh, they would come into class, they would get their, their, their laptops out, and I would start to talk, or some other professor would start to talk, and they would start to type, you see. And one professor used to laugh about them, and he would say, they're all sitting there ready to go, and they say, I believe something, tell me what it is. You see, they weren't thinking, they weren't really engaged in what they were doing. And my fear is that that characterizes us, and if that's what characterizes us, then it's going to be difficult for us to do what John says, to test whether what someone has to say is genuine or not genuine. That's a part of what we have in front of us. And we also have to... Have to uh, 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 look a little bit at, at what it would take to pass the test. And fundamentally, what it takes to pass the test is to make a correct confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So those are some of the background things of the reason why John is, is uh, calling upon them to make a test. 
Now, now what does this test look like? What is he going to be doing in, the test, in this testing? And, and in chapter 4, verse 2, he tells us that the result of the test sets out, uh, but the results set out will enable us to know the Spirit of God. And I take it here that, uh, that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. We'll talk a bit about this later as we go along. But surely knowing the Holy Spirit in know, entails also knowing the Father and the Son. If you read through the whole of the book of uh, the letter to uh, 1 John, you will see over and over again what I call not explicit, uh, but implicit teaching about the Trinity. And so when, when the Apostle tells us that we will come to know the Holy Spirit, he's telling us also that we will come to know the triune God. We'll come to understand something about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what he's trying to get across to us. And, and <clears throat> what he wants is it'll be uh, possible for John's audience to, to recognize the truth about and the truth that comes uh, to, from God. He uses the language of know. Uh, some of you who have very good memories will recall that when that word has come up in our sermons in the past, I've argued that when John uses the, the word know, he's not just telling us that we ought to gain information and that we ought to gain recognition of certain things in a certain way or gain some kind of knowledge. That's not, what John, that's not all John is talking about. Uh, John is still a Hebrew, and when he uses this notion of know, when he uses this language of know, he's not only talking about gaining information, He's talking about developing a kind of relationship, a kind of connection. And when, when people come uh, to test and they come to know something, uh, they come to have a relationship with it. And if they come to know the Holy Spirit, they come to know the triune God, then they refresh and they rejuvenate uh, their relationship with that triune God. But the opposite is also true. That if they refuse that confession that John's telling us to test, if they refuse that, what do they do? They renew, they strengthen, they refresh their relationship with the evil one, with the spirit of the Antichrist. You see, John is not giving us as some middle ground. He's making things clearly one opposing the other. <clears throat> John instructs us to test the confession of those who follow the Holy Spirit and those who follow the, the false prophets, the spirit of the Antichrist. And this notion of confession of John, uh, this, this language actually comes from the, from the legal sphere. And the word basically just has, has two parts. It means same and word or say. And basically it means I agree. I agree with whatever it was that was said. That's how it comes within the legal sphere. Some lexicographers argue that it also has to be done, something that's done in public. It's not something that's, that's done in, in private. And the people who received this letter from the apostle had heard some teachers who hold as their statement, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That is, that they have confessed the doctrine that we call the incarnation of Christ. Uh, now, each of these words in this confession can be, uh, 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 is packed with, with significance. And so let's just try to take a little bit of time to unpack them. I will warn you, if we wanted to unpack them in some full, clear way, we would have to do this over a number of Sunday evenings. Uh, but we're not going to do that. We're just going to try to look at it a little bit. 
And both parts of the, of the name that's used here bear significance. That Jesus is the name and that, that describes, if you will, that's the moniker that's put upon the second person of the Trinity, and it's the name that he received at his birth. Jesus, in John's writings, telegraphs that Jesus a true humanity. And John's understanding of true humanity starts very back in the very beginning of this book. You may recall that when John starts telling who he is, and he talks about what? Having heard, having seen, having touched the second person of the Trinity, the Son. He was a real man. That's what John is trying to conclude. Uh, we see him go on in, <clears throat> in chapter 1. He gets down to verse 7 and he talks about, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, seeing that our, our sins are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And it's the blood that the incarnate Christ has shed. So when John talks about and says that people confess Jesus, they're confessing that he was a real man. It's a very important part of what he's talking about. But he also uses the language Jesus, and then he uses the language Christ. And this points out to, to the fact that Christ fulfills a promise that is given in the Old Testament. The New Testament word for Christ is, is just a translation of the Old Testament word for the Messiah, the promised one that was to come. And so we're to listen for those who state that they agree with the statement that Jesus the man was the one promised throughout the Old Testament. He is the Christ. It's also important for us to pay attention to the word come because it has some significance. It, it reiterates and, and, and enforces what both Jesus and Christ tell about, telegraph to us. And Jesus really came. He's, he's not a ghost or some other form of ethereal unreality. Uh, he's, he came, that is, he was born in the town of Bethlehem uh, during the time when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. It was at a time Luke is very clear. He wants us to know the reality of this Jesus who was born, who was real. Now, the capstone of the true confession is that he came in the flesh. And to, to confess that Jesus came in the flesh means that he was a genuine human being. He's not a ghost, as I said, uh, but uh, he's one, like the writer of the Hebrews says, was able to be tempted in all the points like as we are. He came in the flesh. And Jesus coming in the flesh means that he could genuinely be a substitute for us. He could do things that, that we failed to do. For example, as our substitute, uh, he was able to fulfill all the law so that after he fulfilled the law as a genuine human being who came in the flesh, and then that could be, a, a God could account that to, to our account so that it could be imputed to us. His righteousness could be our righteousness. But it was not only that Jesus in the flesh fulfilled all that righteousness demanded, he also took on himself as a human being, as flesh, all of, uh, of the of the, of the pain, the penalty uh, that, that was a part of it, all the cost, if you will, of wrongdoing, Jesus also bore that in his, his own body in the flesh. So he obeyed the law perfectly and he suffered as our substitute uh, the penalty for our sin. So it's important that he did this as a human being. We as human beings are the ones who break the law. It is a human being who has to fulfill the law so that that, that uh, fulfillment of the law can be accounted to us as righteousness. It is our punishment, a punishment that comes to us because we are human beings, because we have sinned, and a human being has to suffer for us. So when John says uh, that we confess that Jesus Christ has 
come in the flesh, he's not just talking about something that's way out there theologically. It is something that makes a difference with regard to whether we go to heaven or whether we go to hell. Now, now there are some, uh, clearly John is talking about some who refuse to make this confession. He talks about it in verse 3. And when he only says there that they refuse to uh, uh, confess uh, Christ, um, uh, do not confess Jesus, uh, is not from God, um, I think he's just saying it's the contrary to what he has told us in um, verse 2. Now, many of the church fathers claim that, that John opposed Corinthus. Uh, Corinthus uh, taught that the Spirit of Christ came upon Jesus at the time of his baptism, and then he left Jesus before, the, uh, before Jesus' cru- crucififixion. And uh, th- th- that would make Corinthus uh, uh, and his followers as the ideal foil for what John is talking about here as, as we look at this. Uh, John further characterizes these people, though, as the spirit of the Antichrist. And uh, we've already looked at this. Uh, we, we looked at this back when we were at, uh, in chapter 2, <clears throat> when he told them that they were coming and they were already present in the world. And we saw all of this. But just to remind ourselves a little bit, the Antichrist is fundamentally one who fights against Christ. He opposes him. He denies him. That's one of the ways in which the spirit of the Antichrist, but not only is the spirit of Antichrist against Jesus, oftentimes the spirit of Antichrist comes as an imitation, a false, a fake Jesus. And in this text, it seems to me that we see very clearly a fake Jesus, one who can't be said, Jesus Christ, a man, the promised one who of the Old Testament, who came in the flesh. You see, they had some kind of imitation of this Antichrist spirit that was there. And so that, that's who John is worrying about. And so that's, that's what we have to test. That's, that's the fundamental part of the test that John is trying to get across to his people. But he also talks about, if you will, the source and the audience of, his, of, the, of these uh, ant- spirit, people who are the spirit of the Antichrist. And he, he offers the second part of the, of the test, and he asks his little children to discern, first of all, where the opponents came from, and then where the opponents are accepted. Now, they came from the world, John tells us, and they are accepted by the, uh, by the world. Um, John uses world here as a category of that that the place of evil. And not only do those who who exhibit the spirit of the Antichrist have their origins in the world, but they are also accepted by the world. They find comfort, if you will, and they profess their false doctrine. And and we can easily understand this. Heretical teachings are mostly the result of the ways in which the world, the secular world, comes about doing things. If you want to know how philosophy uh, uh, has shaped a heretical teaching within the church, have a conversation with Dr. Oliphant. He spends his life teaching about those kind of things, the way in which philosophy can lead astray in the influences on, with its influence on on, uh, Christian doctrine. But it's not only that the false prophets have, a, have, a, have originated from things like a Gnostic teaching, but John also points out that, that the world listens to them. Uh, the errors that arrive from, uh, arise uh, in worldly thinking is accepted by the world. Uh, in other words, one of the tests that John has here is to see whether the spirit of these prophets, of these speakers, really is true or false, is whether and where they get a hearing. And it's no different in our era. 
that, that there are many things in the world, there are many things about a Christian doctrine, there are many things about what we believe about Jesus Christ that are rejected by the world, and there are many things that, that we are tempted to make adjustments about because we find ourselves being attracted to the acceptance by the world, the very thing that John is warning about here. He's warning them, not only do they see that these people come from the world, but they're also accepted by the world. And, and everyone in this room, I'm sure, at some time or another, has been tempted to, 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 to follow along with the false prophets, with the spirit of the Antichrist. Uh, because we wanted to be accepted by the world. I don't know what the world was but it was it, that you were in, but that's what he's talking about here. And we forget that, that the gospel is, as the Apostle Paul talks about it, there is an offense that comes with the gospel. There is something about the gospel that the world hates. And I can understand why the world would hate that. When you come to somebody and you say you are wrong and you are going to hell, their first inclination is not to love you. Their first inclination is to react to you and hate you. And that's what the Apostle Paul talked about. And it seems to me that's what John is trying to get across to his people. Look at these kind of things. Pay attention to them and see what you're doing. Now, now in contrast to the way in which the world accepts the spirit of the Antichrist, John says his people are really, he says, we are from God. And the we here, I take it, includes not only John the Apostle, who was a teacher, and this probably emphasizes teaching, but it also includes all of his little children. That's the we, those of us who hear and test this confession, and we agree with that confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And the audience of the Antichrist is the world, but the audience of the truth are those who are from God. Note, John repeats that twice, both in verse 4 and again in verse 6. And the emphasis on being from God sets us over against the world. Now, what John wants us to grasp is that the world is as the place of evil under the grip of the evil one, and it accepts those who deny the incarnate Christ. Uh, one message is from the world, and that's a false message. Another message is from God, and that's the true message. And that true message is, is believed and clung to. It's accepted. It finds its home, if you will, in the church. And the opposite message finds its home in the world. I think we have to be careful because it would be a clear error for to us to think that there are two equally opposite kind of things, two equal camps professing contrary messages. John wants his beloved to recognize that God does not just attest to the truth, but he unleashes his power in the midst of his people. That's why he tells them in 4.4 that they have overcome the world. And the reason for their victory over the message, over the messengers, uh, over those who receive it is because God is at work in them. Not only is God at work in them, but he's also greater than the world. And his greatest greatness is contrasted with he who is in the world and who leads the world. Uh, and this can only indicate the ruler of this world, namely Satan. And the scriptures consistently teach, and John himself consistently teaches, that, that, that the Spirit of God overcomes the world. And you've all heard that so many times that it can just go right over top of you. But I think we have to get hold of it. We have to get hold of it very clearly, that, that when we're making these tests and we're making these judgments, when we're trying to decide is that, is that true or not true, and we get 
out by the, by, the, by the world that's around us. We have to remember that we're the overcomers of the world, that the power of God is at work in us and not in them. And look at what John himself says is going to happen and to the power in this world, to the ruler of this world, and to the devil himself. Listen to what he has to say in the 21st chapter of Revelation. Let me read to you verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. John says, you overcome the world. He says to you tonight, you are overcomers. You are victors because of the power of God so that we don't have to be cowed by the world. I say that to you, and as I say that to you, you have to say it to me as well. Because I've experienced those kinds of things. All of us have. But we have to get hold of it. When we, when we make this test and we make a judgment that there is wrong in this world, that there are those who are deniers of the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have to bow down to them. We don't have to be frightened of them because God is more powerful than them. And the leader of these people or of the spirit of the Antichrist is going to be cast into the lake of fire where he'll be tormented, tormented forever and forever. That's the way in which God persuades this for us. Now, John concludes his words of encouragement to his children to test the spirits to see if they're from God. And, and he's sure that they will make the right judgment because he knows that they are from God. Um, he adds that they will know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I mentioned earlier, and said so we come back to this. Now, the spirit of truth is clearly in this text the Holy Spirit. I agree with the translators of the ESV. That's why they put a cap S to talk about spirit, as in indicating that they have determined that uh, this refers to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is recognized by God's people as representing the truth. But, but, but it's not just like the, like the Holy Spirit is some kind of a symbol of truth. The Holy Spirit clearly is a symbol of truth. He's the author of truth, but he's also the one who is the revealer of truth. And he's also the one who works in people so that they can continue to hang on to the truth. They can hold it dear, that they don't lose it. That's the work of the Spirit in our hearts. He comes and he informs us, if you will, through the pages of Scripture what truth is. He works in us in some way so that we can come to understand what the truth is. And once we come to understand what that truth is, that when the world comes to fight against us, he enables us to hang on to that truth. Why? Because you're overcomers. And why are you overcomers? Because the one who is in us is stronger than the one who is in the Antichrist. And so we see the way in which the Spirit of God works in his people and uh, enables them, if you will, to overcome the wrong thinking of their opposition. Now, now John is, is arguing against something that theologians call docetus. Uh, those are people who think that the Jesus that didn't come in the flesh, that, that there was no real incarnation, that it was a sort of just like he was, a kind of a model, if you will, idea that's there. And this heresy that, that John uh, opposes is not the dominant within a theological circles in the era in which we live. There are some within uh, evangelical conservative churches that have fought against liberalism with such a strenuous... Uh, ideas because they, the liberals have denied uh, the divinity of Christ and so some people have hung on to the divinity of Christ that they sort of lose connections with the humanity of Christ. 
But, but I do think that the biggest danger for us is the renewal of some forms of, of Gnosticism. And it was somehow connected with Gnosticism that this idea of uh, Jesus as not really being a truly man and truly God. Now, for those of you who have been involved with psychology and some of you with uh, counseling kinds of things, you may have been introduced to some things by Carl Jung, uh, the psychologist. And Carl Jung is filled with uh, Gnostic kind of ideas and so we have to be careful of that much of the literature that uh, that uh, brings to us the new age movement is also uh, filled with uh, Gnosticism but regardless of one whether one suspects the presence of docetism or of Gnosticism uh, we can all profit by this call to test uh, the spirits the fundamental point that John wants us to get when we look at the things that come from the world, one of the ways in which we always test them is to ask the question, what do they do with Jesus? What do they believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? And if people don't believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, if they don't believe that he's a man, if they don't believe that he's the promised Messiah, if they don't believe that he is the genuine divine son of the living God, then they are denying something that's essential to the Christian faith. And whatever it is that they are believing, they are of the spirit of the Antichrist because what they have done is they've grasped for themselves some kind of imitation of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's always good for us and to use this test that John puts before us and to see whether somebody is giving us the truth that John sets before us, or if they're an error and whether they are engaged and uh, captured by the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, whether we like tests or not, we need to be ready to test the spirits to see whether they come from God. And one necessary form of that then is, do they, what do they believe about Jesus? Uh, a second form, though, is to ask, where are they comfortable? Is this something that finds itself comfortable in the world? And brothers and sisters, that's the one that I think I wrestle with the most. That there is something in this society and the way in which it permeates us in our own personal lives that it becomes overwhelmingly attractive. And if I might use a sports analogy to try to explain this, if you know before a game that this Team A is going to lose to Team B, your tendency is not to pay any attention to the game if you know it's already over. And brothers and sisters, John is telling us the game is over. You are the overcomers, you are the winners, and the world is the loser, and the leader of the world is going to be cast into the lake of fire and be tormented forever and ever. And somehow, I got to get that in my head, and my suspicion is that there are a lot of other heads in this room that need to get it as well. But not only do we have to look out to test spirits, we also have to give that test to ourselves. What do you think about Jesus? Is the center of your Christian faith the fact that Jesus came he was the promised one of the Old Testament. He came in the flesh, and the reason why he came in the flesh was so he could be a substitute to accomplish righteousness and give that to you and to take your sin upon himself and to bear his punishment. 
Test yourself. Ask yourself tonight. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, brothers and sisters, you're on God's side. And God is on your side. And because God is on your side, you are overcomers. And if you do not believe that, if that's not something that you hold to, I plead with you, repent. Tell God you're sorry. And plead with him to cause his spirit to come and to be at work in you so that you can make that confession. I believe in Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to save me from my sins. Then you can be on God's side and he can be on your side. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us things that sometimes are hard and even require us to sweat a little as we think about them. But we ask, O oh God, that you will give us grace that we can test the spirits. And we pray that we will always apply that test to ourselves. And we pray, O oh Lord God in heaven, that we will not doubt you, but that we will believe that you have sent your son to come into this world to die in our place. And we thank you that we who believe that have overcome the world because you have. We have tasted your goodness, O oh Lord God in heaven, and we praise and we honor you for it this night. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.